0: howdy hey howdy ho it is your host madden here coming at you with another episode of the tick the podcast of random thoughts that make our minds tick on end tickle our curiosity or may downright just tick us off let's go This week we are discussing memory, a topic I circle back to quite often, as it is what I like to call the cornerstone for cognitive development, intelligence, and learning. We will be discussing three interesting curiosities involving memory. An interesting headline came across my desk this week. The clickbait title read, Taylor Swift fans report amnesia following ERA's show. I know several of our listeners are Swifties, and I honestly found this idea of concert amnesia intriguing. So nonetheless, I felt that this not only may have affected some of our listeners directly, but I genuinely have a curiosity within the field. And regardless if T-Swizzle is your favorite artist or not, Many of us do enjoy listening to music or have some other passion or interest that, when concentrated into a special occasion, can produce high levels of dopamine and get us overly excited and produce adrenaline. To explain the idea of post-concert amnesia, we will focus on Taylor Swift's Eras Tour as it is the talk of the town at the moment. I mean, we have to give credit where credit is due. So I need to build some context that doesn't necessarily have to do with concert amnesia, but more of the importance or severity that the Eras tour has not only on Taylor Swift fans and Taylor Swift, but pop culture in general.
1: Taylor Swift's Eras Tour, which kicked off on Friday in Arizona. This thing is supposed to last 52 stadium dates. It's going to be over the course of the year. It will become the highest grossing tour of all time. The projections are that it will earn $591 million. so that's not a bad payday for a year. She just rips. I think it's amazing, too, because these concerts are so long. People have been preparing for them like they prepare for a marathon. She's going 44 songs. She's a beast. Basically an endurance sport. Katie Ledecky, who's this incredible swimmer, she tweeted three-hour shows. Taylor Swift is definitely a distance swimmer yeah and i think someone tracked taylor swift's movements and then she walks up to two miles every concert in heels too in heels pretty impressive
0: that clip by the morning brew daily show was at the beginning of the tour as taylor swift is wrapping up her stateside tour ticket sales would pop up to 1.9 billion dollars making eras the top grossing tour ever with much higher average ticket prices, and far fewer concerts. Sales for just the pre-sale tickets alone broke the internet, or at least the monopoly that is Ticketmaster. Let's listen in to Yahoo Finance for some insight.
2: Taylor Swift's Eras tour could be one of the highest grossing tours of all time. And that's after just two days of presale. Ticketmaster ended up canceling the regular ticket sales day following what they called insufficient remaining ticket inventory and extraordinarily high demands. Um, have you ever met a Swifty? Cause we live for this. It sounds like Ticketmaster sent out 1.5 million presale codes. Under normal circumstances, it looks like they usually have about 40% of people who receive an invite code follow through and actually purchase tickets. Those purchasing presale tickets usually buy an average of three tickets per person. Looks like they underestimated, huh? Taylor's Reputation Tour was the highest-grossing tour of all time, coming in at $266.1 million, according to Variety. And Eras is set to be her biggest tour ever, with over 50 show dates. Forbes had Taylor at a $570
0: million net worth in June. According to Ticketmaster themselves, the desire for Swiss tickets smote all records and reasonable expectations. 14 million users and bots tried to buy tickets. The company's chair said that the pre-sale traffic eclipsed any previous peak by a factor of four. To meet such demands, Swift would have to play over 900 stadium shows. That's almost 20 times the number of shows she is currently set to do. The company's numbers raise a lot of questions. How much of a role did resellers play, for example? But the underlying takeaway seems correct. The breadth and intensity of Swift's fandom right now is extraordinary. I'll be honest with you, I knew that the Taylor Swift Eras Tour was a big deal, but I didn't really know the stats behind it, and I didn't have the opportunity to attend. So I had to turn to my resident Swifty herself, my sister Courtney, to get the 411, get the lowdown on why it is such a big deal. Each concert is three and a half hours long and contains 44 songs. 44 songs. That's crazy. I think the average uh, concert is 12 songs, so 44 songs. It is the first mega A-list tour post-pandemic. Her breaks are only two minutes at a time to do quick changes, multiple different outfit options for each era, are up to three different outfit changes. She debuted different outfits at different shows, so each show was different. With the combination of outfits, they had kind of a base, she had a baseline set list but has surprise songs, guests, and special features at each one. So each one is truly different from the others. They had fire or pyrotechnics. At one point, she dove into the stage with dynamic risers, screens, etc. constantly changing. It is an all-out spectacle. She talks to the audience. She's very vulnerable, which is different than common concerts. Common concerts they get on, they play the same set list at every venue they go to. They don't necessarily talk to the audience. If they do, it's the same thing they say every time. You're really getting her a different story, a different joke, her ad lib, her mood, a different speech every night. So fans are getting Taylor's true self on that given night. In addition to any changes she makes to the set list with the surprise songs or outfit changes. Another intentionality Taylor and her team took for this tour a large portion of onstage, of her onstage support were people of marginalized communities, people of color, um, LGBTQ people. Um, she really promoted girl power and power within being different and unique. She utilized the same band from her Fearless era days, and she covered all sorts of genres from her. Self-named first album, Taylor Swift, which was country, all the way to pop, rock, folk. She appeals to a variety of tastes. Going back through each era, she is connecting on an individual level with every fan. Taylor Swift has fans from literally every generation. I was thinking about when I first started listening to Taylor Swift, it was kind of early middle school years. There have been children born into this world whose parents listened to Taylor Swift, and they are now into Taylor Swift because it's what their parents listen to, but also because of this social media, digital media days, where we have TikTok with sound bites and that kind of stuff. So they've also invested on their own outside of their parents. So she transcends generations, which is quite literally why she calls this the era's tour. She literally did all eras of her music from her self-named album, Taylor Swift, all the way through her most recent album, Midnight. She has 10 different albums that she goes through. Taylor Swift, the self-name, Fearless, Speak Now, Red, 1989, Reputation, Lover, Folklore, Evermore, and Midnight. She literally mixed all eras of her music so no one missed out. No matter what type of fan you are, there is something for everyone. Swifties love a cross-generational show. There's a huge sort of fanfare that comes with the concert outside of what Taylor's providing Uh, because of the TikTok age, social media age, Twitter, Instagram age, there's uh, Swifties that are making friendship bracelets, and they're making friends from around the world. They are literally making friends with 70,000 other people that night. When it comes to the topic of recording and owning her music, she has completely redefined the music industry. She obviously doesn't need the money, but is doing it out of the principle, looking out for maybe lesser known artists or the little man. She's taken on Spotify to ensure that they prioritize streams uh, generating revenue that goes to the artist, not just the platform. A little background on that. When she got into the industry, she started out with Scott Borchetta with Big Machine Records. And come to find out, even though she was like an excited girl and her parents were trying to do the best for her, she signed a contract where he owned all of her music. Although she wrote and recorded it, he owned it and she was signed under him. Not knowing the games that the entertainment industry plays and due to her being young and naive and just wanting to get stuff recorded and out and become popular and famous, didn't realize how predatory it could be and was just excited to have a deal. Scooter Braun then bought her masters from Scott Borchetta later on so that she could not perform her music without their say. So she signed with a different label and she has since re-recorded all of her music or is in the process of re-recording some of that music. So she has the rights to do what she wishes with her music. She can perform when she wants to and she gets the credit whenever the music is played. Side note, my sister Courtney told me that Kelly Clarkson or that she thinks that Kelly Clarkson was the one who gave her the idea. Kelly tweeted something about like, hey Taylor, you should just re-record your music, that way you own it. And she not only re-recorded all of the stuff that we had on the original albums, but she recorded songs that did not make the cut of the original albums. So we got Taylor's version of all of the albums, but then there were additional songs on each album that did not make it, if you will, from the vault. Before we start discussing the topic at hand, the concert amnesia, let's take a look back at her eras. Our song is the way he
1: left. The first date, man, I didn't kiss her, man, I should have.
0: The weather is unbelievable that many Taylor Swift fans are claiming to suffer from post-concert amnesia. Psychologists say emotions in time may be behind this phenomenon. Post-concert amnesia, also known as concert blackout or concert-induced amnesia, refers to a phenomenon in which individuals have difficulty recalling or forming memories of events that occurred during or immediately after a concert or live music performance. It is characterized by a temporary loss of memory or gaps in memory regarding specific details or moments associated with the concert experience. From out-of-body experiences to enter a dreamlike state, Swift fans have taken to social media in recent days to reveal their guilt at not being able to remember key moments from this era's tour. Amnesia can be quite a serious symptom, referring to the loss of memories, experiences, and information. Dr. Michelle Phillips, a senior lecturer in music psychology, from the Royal Northern College of Music, says the idea of post-concert amnesia is not as scary as it sounds. They suggest that it is not likely that fans forget the experience altogether, but rather encode specific memories from the experience rather than the whole thing. Suggesting people do have a memory of what is important to them, whether it be the dancers, the band, the costume design, fans may encode those specific memories or the memories that are important to them, and not the overall night, or the music in general. When fans are excited and so immersed in a moment, they can feel as though time had suddenly passed, and they hadn't been able to properly process everything they've just seen, heard, and felt. Since the era's tour was such a production that enveloped all five of the senses, often simultaneously, from strobe lights, massive props, and more costume changes than you can keep track of. So it's no surprise that concert goers are not going to remember everything they experienced after having to process so much. The exact causes of post-concert amnesia are not fully understood, but several factors contribute to its occurrence. Dr. Phillips mentions four. Number one, intense emotional experience. Concerts often create a highly stimulating and emotionally charged environment. This was true of the era's tour. The combination of loud music, energetic performances, and the collective enthusiasm of the audience can trigger intense emotional states. Extremely emotional events can disrupt memory formation and consolidation, leading to memory gaps. Number two, the high levels of arousal. Concerts are typically associated with increased arousal levels due to the excitement and sensory stimulation involved. Heightened arousal can influence the encoding and retrieval of memories. In cases of extreme arousal, the brain may prioritize processing immediate sensory information over the consolidation of memories, resulting in memory deficits. Number 3. Sleep deprivation Concerts often include late nights and individuals may not get sufficient sleep before or after the event. For our resident Swifty Courtney, it was an all-day affair. They got up early, started getting ready. They had a specific place they ate at. They took pictures at a specific place. They had all of these itinerary items they had to do before they even showed up to the venue to see the era's tour. Lack of sleep affects cognitive functions including attention, concentration, and memory encoding, leading to memory lapses or gaps. So leading up to the day of the concert, they may have some sleep deprivation just out of anticipation and anxiety. They may not have had their daily nap because they were having to do all of these itinerary items that they had planned for themselves, or the sleep deprivation of staying up or living on that high after the concert may also contribute to the memory loss. Number four. Finally, is attention focus. During the concert, individuals are highly focused on the performance, the music, and the overall experience. This intense attention and concentration on the immediate sensory aspects of the event can divert cognitive resources away from forming detailed memories. The brain may prioritize the experimental aspect of the concert over encoding specific details, resulting in memory deficits. It is important to note that post-concert amnesia is generally just a temporary condition. As arousal levels return to normal, people get back to their normal state, and emotional intensity subsides, and individuals rest and recover, memory retrieval may improve. However, in some cases, certain details or moments may remain permanently inaccessible due to the factors we have mentioned. If Swifties are worried about having forgotten bits of the show, listening to the set list again might just make all those memories come flooding back as some sort of a trigger. Of course, if you were to experience persistent or concerning memory problems beyond the immediate post-concert period, it is of course advisable to consult a healthcare professional for further evaluation and guidance. Have you ever retold a memory only to be told by someone else that was there? That's not what actually happened? Or, my favorite, you've told a story to someone so many times they actually believe that they were there? Both of these happen quite often to me. And I have to admit, I do have quite the imagination and tend to embellish the story a little bit. Did you know that memories are not stored as exact replicas of reality of the experience? Rather, they are modified and reconstructed during the recall process. People tend to experience their memories of events like movie clips, which often play back in their minds. Because of this, people think that memories are stored in their entirety and never change. But this is not what happens. Our memories are reconstructed every time we think of them. Because memories are reconstructed, they are susceptible to being manipulated with false information. Memories are fallible. They are reconstructions of reality filtered through people's minds, not perfect snapshots of events. Memory errors occur when memories are recalled incorrectly. A memory gap is the complete loss of a memory. Consolidation is the act or process of turning short-term memories into more permanent, long-term memories. In a 1932 study, Frederick Bartlett demonstrated how telling and retelling a story distorted information recall. In his psychosocial experiment, he told participants a complicated Native American story and had them repeat it over a series of intervals. Each repetition, the stories were altered. Kind of like a game of telephone, I guess you could say. Even when the participants got the overall plot and purpose of the tale correct in their renditions, they also filled gaps with false information or information that was not originally presented. Bartlett suggested this was due to their use of schemas. A schema is a generalization formed in the mind based on one's own experience. Again, drawing back to our last episode, drawing from their own personal experiences to build perspective. He suggests that the use of schemas in the retelling of the tale was in order for the storyteller to make sense of the story for themselves, creating a framework they could relate to based on their typical experiences that shape their own expectations and memories. Schemas are often based on several events and not one isolated event. When storytelling participants filled in blanks and inconsistencies through their use of their imagination, which was built on similarities with their own memories. A similar yet more complex psychological concept to schema is the intrusion errors, which occur when information that is related to the theme of a certain memory, or a certain tale if we're going back to the original experiment, but was not actually a part of the original, becomes associated with the event. So similar themes or similar experiences related to the overall theme of the tale then become associated with the event in their mind. Another thing that can alter memory on recall is leading questions. When asked to recall a memory, one might be asked a question. Sometimes these questions lead the recaller down a specific response track, Much research has shown that the phrasing of the questions can also alter the memories. A leading question is a question that suggests the answer or contains the information the examiner is looking for. For instance, one study showed that simply changing one word in a question could alter a participant's answers. For example, after viewing video footage of a car accident, participants were asked how slow the car was going versus how fast the car was going. Same question, they wanted to know the speed of the car. Those that were asked how slow the car was moving gave lower speed estimations versus those that were asked how fast it was going gave higher speed estimates. Children are particularly suggestible to such leading questions. Another thing that can impact memory recall is memory bias. A person's motivations, intentions, mood, and biases can impact what they remember about the event. There are many identified types of biases that influence people's memories, some of which may include memory conformity. Also known as a social contagion of memory refers to a situation in which one person's report of memory influences another person's report of the same experience. This interference often occurs when individuals discuss what they saw or experienced and can result in the memories of those involved being influenced by the report of another person. The text and studies that I have been using by Andrande and Walker Cognitive Psychology Section 5 go on to discuss how memory reconstruction, whether conscious or subconscious, causes concern when it comes to eyewitness testimony, especially when it comes into play in our judicial systems of today. However, I personally found it important at a normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill average human standpoint, if that is truly such a thing. As I was conducting this research, I kept thinking, you mean it isn't just like Dumbledore pulling a memory out by his wand and placing it into a magical vial?
1: What you are looking at are memories. In this case, pertaining to one individual, Voldemort, or as it was known then, Tom Riddle. This vial contains the most particular memory of the day I first met him.
0: Or it's not as simple as the myriad of sphere objects held in some great memory room in the back of our brain, like an in inside out.
1: Phone numbers. We don't need all these. They're in her phone. Just forget it's all of that, out, please. Hi. Forget it. I need to find Look at friendship. This. This. Island. Four years of piano lessons. Yeah, it looks pretty faded. You know what? Save chopsticks and heart and soul, get rid of the rest. Are you US presidents? What do you think? Yeah, uh, just keep Washington, Lincoln, and the fab one. Forget them. Hey, you can't throw do- those are perfectly good memories. The names of every cutie pie Princess Thou. Yes, that is critical information, Glitterstorm. Honey pants, Arsenal. Forget <laughs> Hey, bring those back! They're in the dump. Nothing comes back from the dump. Yeah, look, lady, this is our job. Okay? When Riley doesn't care about a memory, it fades. Fade? Happens to the best of them. Yeah, except for this bad boy. <laughs> this one will never fade. <laughs> <laughs> Triple that gun. Well, The song from the gum commercial. You know, sometimes we send that one up to headquarters for no reason. It plays in Riley's head
0: over and over again, like a million times. Interesting, but also makes sense that our memories are not exactly as they were in reality. And that each time we recall memories, they adapt and change not only based on the context of the conversation or the environment we are in, but also due to the time passing or imagination and connection making to our current context. So memories can change over time. There's lots of things that can change it. Our perspective can change it. A significant other may remember an argument a different way because we have different perspectives. We had different ideas going into the argument, during the argument, and coming out of the argument. Maybe our parents used to say, there's three sides to every story. My side, their side, and the truth, which would be the reality. Reality isn't the memory that is actually stored because it is tainted by our perspective in the original memory making, but then in the recall as well, we have learned. I just find it so interesting that memories can be distorted by our own mind and that our memories can be manipulated by our own mind subconsciously, not on purpose. And in my case, in embellishing the stories a bit because of my wild imagination. Does it ever seem like no matter how good life is, all it takes is one negative experience to ruin it all? Well, if you at any point in your life can relate to that question, guess what? You are completely and utterly normal. That's right. There is such thing as a negative to positive memory ratio. And I bet you will be surprised to hear what exactly that ratio is. It is true, you're not just seeing the glass half empty. Our brains naturally outweigh the bad over the good. For example, you may have just had two assists and two threes in a layup, yet your missed elbow shot in the fourth quarter has you in the dumps. Daniel Kahneman, a Nobel Prize winning scientist, suggests that every day we experience around 20,000 moments. Oh, wow man. But what determines a moment or experience? A moment is defined as a few seconds in which our brain records an experience. The quality of our days is determined by how our brains recognize and categorize our moments. All day, our minds are categorizing and sorting these experiences into either positive, negative, or neutral moments. Oftentimes, our mind naturally admits the neutral ones. Goodbye! Now, scientists propose that each day our frontal lobes, or the part of our brain that controls our thoughts and emotions, keeps track of our positive and negative moments, and the resulting score contributes to our overall mood. In our own lifetime, scientists have explored the impact of positive to negative interaction ratios in our work and personal life. They have even been able to predict with remarkable accuracy everything from workplace performance to divorce. First up, my, yo, John Gottman, an American psychologist and leader in modern-day marriage and family relations, provides us with his exploration of positive to negative experience ratios through his studies in his field. Gottman's 5 to 1 ratio, or as many call it, the magic ratio, comes from when he and his colleagues predicted whether 700 newlywed couples would stay together or divorce by scoring their positive and negative interactions from only one 15-minute conversation with the spouses. Just 15 minutes. Get this, when they followed up with the couples a decade later after their initial meeting, they had correctly predicted the couple's outcomes with a 94% accuracy.
1: it.
0: It is the research of both Kahneman and Gottman that has sparked the curiosity of many leaders in the field of psychology, interpersonal relationships, and development to create understandings that are applicable to the general population like you and I. Many of these are utilized in social and emotional learning curriculums or mindfulness strategies for all ages. One specific example I know many of my students can relate to from their elementary times is the well-known metaphor of the bucket filler and the bucket dipper, where Clifton and Rath utilize a bucket to help their audience look at positive and negative interactions by encouraging imagination of a bucket within each person that needs to be filled with positive experiences such as praise, encouragement, and recognition. When there is a negative experience, a dipper, or I like to say a shovel or a scoop, removes whatever substance, which represents positive outlook and mindset, that is contained in the bucket. On the other hand, any positive experiences we might have add to the substance. That is contained within the bucket the creators rely heavily on our own actions having an impact on others to see their metaphor to fruition asking the audience are you a bucket filler or a bucket dipper this encourages children the audience to have positive interactions with others concluding that when we treat others well our bucket is also filled this kind of reminds me of the golden rule treat others the way you want to be treated However, the metaphor can be extended to self, and just overall experience, these moments I referenced earlier, and interactions with the world we live in. I mean, a bird could poop on my head, or I could stub my toe, and those would be bucket dippers, obviously, or negative experiences or negative moments, even though I did not have any human interaction during these experiences. I mean... The wall I stubbed my toe on is an inanimate object, and the bird had to relieve themselves at some point. My head just happened to be where it landed. The Washington Post recently did a survey of its audience's most vivid memories, some of which included near-death experiences, trauma, life immediately after losing a loved one, or unexplainable miracles. Some people did share positive experiences of trips to theme parks with their family or family holidays. However, these responses were overwhelmingly retellings of trauma or traumas turned to silver linings. Many studies suggest that we are more likely to remember negative experiences over positive experiences. With the help of psychologists like John Gottman, researchers have been able to argue that the trait of remembering negative experiences over positive experiences long predates modern-day science and technology. Laura Karstensen, From Stanford University, who focuses her studies on aging, concludes that this trait began with the beginning of man as a means of survival, specifically stating the importance of noticing the lion in the brush versus noticing the beautiful flower near the brush. She suggests that our memory is heavily focused on negative experiences and its adaptive value, as there is a lot of information to be learned in difficult or dangerous situations. And that our brains can apply that knowledge when a similar situation presents itself in the future. Keep in mind that her area of interest is in aging. In addition to our minds naturally giving negative experiences heavier weight, she suggests there is also an element of age in play when it comes to coding our daily experiences. In her research, she has found that when looking at emotions and experience coding, The age range containing the 20s to 30s seems to be the worst time. Yikes. That's my current stage. Suggesting a phenomenon that attention to negative memories is more pronounced among the younger portion of self-aware and self-responsible people, or I should have just said adults. She attributes this to the fact that the young adults in this age bracket of 20s to 30s have their whole lives ahead of them. Lots of decisions are being made during this stage, and these decisions are made based on the schema of the individual based on the experiences they have had that led them to that point in their lives, in comparison to middle to older adulthood who are able to live easier in the present as they are sitting with the outcomes of the decisions made in their young adulthood. Simply put, the focus on her studies being in young adulthood is due to the amount of thinking and actualization that is placed on future planning in that stage, whereas after that stage, the mind is able to relax a bit as it can live in the present and focus on the positive information, which makes the present feel good. I found this study relatable. As I mentioned, this is the stage I'm currently in. Everything holds a lot of weight and pressure in each of my experiences and choices, impacting what my future looks like. I truly feel like I'm playing a live-action version of the board game, Life. And honestly, sometimes it's hard to slow down and stop and enjoy the present. Enjoying the decisions and experiences I chose for myself today. It's giving um, Newton's every action has an equal and opposite reaction. But our memories, as mentioned in the previous segment, are always changing as we recall them through the subconscious process of memory reconstruction. She says we're constantly refining, pruning memories, and letting them go while we bring in others and integrate them into networks of memories. And memory affects our goals at the time something happens and again at the time we retrieve it, reminding us that memories are fallible and faulty. That's it. That's all we got for episode three. We covered three different areas of interest within memory. And we didn't even discuss memory retention as in learning. Wow, there's so much more we could cover. We covered three important areas. We started off with some pop culture with the concert amnesia concert goers are experiencing after the Taylor Swift era's tour. We covered memory reconstruction, And I found it interesting that in the end, the latter two, memory reconstruction and negative memories kind of piggybacked off of each other. With that being said, I hope you're able to go out and enjoy your summer and build some positive memories and that your positive memories can outweigh your negative memories this week. And that when you recall these memories down the road, whether it be next year, next month, tomorrow, or 10 years from now, that you're able to recall them as positive experiences. Y'all have a great week, and we'll see you in two weeks with our episode four. Who knows who or what may be tickling our curiosity then? Happy Pride, and stay curious.